In this episode, I had the chance to speak with Vaja Boko, founder and CEO of Irio, an early stage healthcare IT company from Slovenia. We discuss Iro's journey so far and the importance of permissioning health data using blockchain technology. Irio runs on the EOS network and is focused on creating an open-sourced EHR platform with zero-knowledge encryption. I apologize in advance for the sound quality of parts of the recording. Uh, there were periods of technical difficulty, but we made it through, and I think there's plenty to take away in this episode. Hi, I'm your host, Ray Dogan, and welcome to Health Unchained. On this show, I'll be speaking with healthcare entrepreneurs, thought leaders, and executives who are using blockchain technologies to revolutionize healthcare. These innovators are building the distributed infrastructure and diverse communities required for a trusted, secure, and decentralized healthcare ecosystem. Enjoy the show. What is blockchain? What is blockchain? What is blockchain? The doctor will see you now. Okay, and today on Health Unchained, we have Vaja Boko. He is founder and CEO of Irio, which is a healthcare blockchain company trying to build, develop a platform that allows patients to own their own data and also offer a marketplace for researchers to um, conduct research on the data of all these patients and much more than that. But um, Vaja, very, uh, very happy to have you here. Very excited. I think there's a lot of things to talk about. Uh, thank you for joining. Um, so if you want to kind of um, talk about maybe, you know, your background, because I'm very interested in your in your background. It's not specifically in healthcare. I know you started in finance and economics, and then you had various experiences, including a summer in Washington, D.C., working at the embassy of Slovenia in 2011. Yeah. And then, you know, some banking experience, product and project manager experience in uh, at technology companies, including 3FS, which is a, you know, really... Um, cool AR, VR, different high-tech company, as well as Bitstamp, which is a cryptocurrency exchange, and probably yeah. other stuff I might have missed. But tell me about how you got into healthcare. Sure. Um, hi, Ray, and hi to all the listeners. Happy to uh, be here and happy uh, um, that you invited me to, uh, to be able to present what we're doing. Yeah, so it's um, it was quite a basically a long story how we got into um, healthcare. But the, the three co-founders that uh, we started Irio together, we were at some point all working at, at 3FS that you mentioned. Um, and I think you know healthcare is an interesting space because at some point everyone's a participant. So you know at some point everyone's a, is a patient or in some sort of role participating in in the system. And so being in in IT and and uh, you know being either patients or knowing people who work in healthcare, we were always sort of amazed how healthcare, how uh, healthcare IT is, is uh, lagging far behind modern IT systems. And so, you know, we've always had these discussions over coffee or at the water cooler, how, you know, things could, could be better and how to improve them. Um, but at the same time, we, we've always um, had a, a bit of a fear of, the industry because it's so complex, it's so big, it's ruled by um, massive, massive players, um, and so we were a bit reluctant to to dive into it. But um, end of summer last year, things sort of um, came to fruition, and then we decided to uh, 
dive into it. And so we've been working on on uh, Erio now for the past um, almost a year now. And from what I understand, Erio actually translates into medicine in Japanese. Yeah, it's a, it's a Japanese. It's supposed to be an old Japanese word for medicine, which we thought would be quite. Um, appropriate for what we're trying to do. Uh, we were a bit worried that people won't be able to pronounce it, but uh, so far it, it, it works pretty well. <laughs> yeah, it seems to be working. Um, can you tell me like a little bit about how the company is structured, where it's incorporated? Sure. Um, so it uh, because we were all working at, at um, the, the company that you mentioned, uh, 3FS um, or Third Frame Studios, um, we were lucky that, that 3FS uh, was basically willing to provide seed funding uh, from the beginning. We also got some um, other means of support from them. Uh, we're still sharing the same offices. Um, and obviously, because they provided the initial funding, they're a um, co-owner of the company as well. So right now it's uh, three uh, people, uh, myself, uh, Peter Kuralt, who's the chief product officer, and Dominic Nidak, who's the CTO. Um, and 3FS. So it's basically four legal entities who are um, co-founders. Uh, we are based in Slovenia, just outside of Ljubljana, the capital. Um, right now, it's 10 people full-time. Um, we're all based in Slovenia. It's an international team, nevertheless. Uh, so we have an American guy, we have a, a Polish guy. Uh, the rest is right now um, all Slovenes. Um, but yeah, we're, we're hoping that, uh, you know, we, we, the, the team will grow to at least 20, uh, people mm -hmm. relatively soon. And are, are these people, are they mainly developers or what's the primary, um, mm -hmm. you know, goal for your company right now? What's the objective? Um, so short yeah, so we see, so right now it's out of 10 people right now it's four developers. Um, but we do see ourselves primarily as an IT company, um, but we sort of, you know, I'm, well, I'm myself personally, I'm a, I'm a failed IT student. I did um, two years of computer science, then I dropped out and I did completely different things. Um, but I think because of our, our past experience and our, our background and so on, we, you know, we see ourselves in a, as an IT company, but we think that a, an IT company shouldn't just be um, engineers. Um, we think that, you know, UX people, UI people, business developers, all of that is extremely important. And I think it's even more important in, in healthcare uh, for reasons that we can go into later. Yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right. You, you know, anyone trying to tackle this space will soon realize how difficult it is to break the barriers that exist from these, you know, existing companies like you mentioned. And, you know, I was looking into your white paper a little bit and I noticed that you know, Erio is focused on three things, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but one is interoperability, two is data toxicity, and the third is data ownership. And I feel like interoperability is kind of understood as, you know, what that means, meaning you'll have different systems speaking with each other and sharing data most appropriately, and data ownership, I think people can kind of understand what that means. You have health data, you'll be the one to own it and provide permissions if anyone else wants to access it. But data toxicity, to me, that was kind of uh, sort of a new term. Can you kind of you know define data toxicity for the audience and you know, what that means and why you're focusing on it? Sure. Um, data toxicity. Um, so to give a bit of a background, what I think 
what is happening in healthcare IT is that, um, you know, you have data producers um, and that would be your um, general practitioner, it would be hospital, it would be um, a diagnostics lab or what have you. Um, they tend to be very protective of the data that they produce and they look at the data as either their competitive advantage or uh, something that they own. Um, now that is, is you know, is, is gradually changing through legislation. Um, in the EU, um, just a couple of weeks ago, um, GDPR uh, went into effect, uh, which, which basically gives a lot of rights to data owners and the data owners actually being the people um, whose, whose data that is. For example, if I walk into a diagnostics lab um, and I want to get a uh, my blood tested, uh, you know, obviously all of all of those test results um, are related to me specifically, and that can be personal identifiable information. And so, um, with with legislation like GDPR, um, I am now the, basically the legal owner of that data, and so in a way, it it should belong to me. Um, but anyway, going back to the point of of data toxicity, um, these data producers um, want to. Um, sit on that data and control that data, but what they don't realize is that that data is a huge liability, um, especially in terms of, of GDPR, of, of regulation that protects personal identifiable information. Um, that data, if it leaks, it can cause um, a lot of harm, it can cause financial damage um, to the people um, that the data belongs to, um, or you could just simply get fined because of uh, regulation that says that you need to protect that data and what we sort of want to um, get you know um, across to, to, to various uh, players in the healthcare space is that the, the data you know they are in the business of providing the best possible care they're not in the business of um, protecting um, digital data and they should really uh, outsource that to someone else who is uh, much better at doing that yeah, I think that's that makes a lot of sense. I mean, if they didn't have to carry around the data and still potentially, you know, utilize some of the data to develop insights, you know, use that data after it's been anonymized, that would be pretty beneficial. And I think that you guys are also developing, you know, sort of like a portal for researchers to do that sort of thing. Can you tell me a little bit more about your, you know, the Eero research portal? software and how how far in development has it has it gone so far um right so uh, maybe if you don't mind i'm gonna um, step back a bit and and, and um, first talk about the you know whole um yeah. idea of what we're, what we're doing with Erio before we go into the specifics of, of sure. researchers and so on um, and so the basic i mean you've, you've summed it up quite well i think um but i think even a shorter version of um of that would be um that Erio wants to tackle um that the frictions of data exchange so uh, and specifically healthcare data exchange so we want to make it as easy as possible to exchange healthcare data and we think that is really the the number one problem in healthcare it right now we've seen it improve um all sorts of of traditional industries um, across the spectrum and you know it's we're hoping that it will put healthcare on the path of sustainability um, so that we will have um, better outcomes, um, better uh, treatments while lowering the costs. Um, we don't think that's possible until we have good data uh, because all IT systems are based on, on good 
information, information that is readily available, that is in the right format. So if we want to achieve any of those promises that, that IT in generally, um, you know, is, is, is promising in, in healthcare, then we need to get really good data. Um, and that's what we're trying to tackle. Um, and if we now, if we go to your question, which is what we're trying to do for researchers is that it's really interesting uh, when you start looking at surveys, um, which will show you that if you, if you ask uh, the general population, they are more than willing to share sometimes very personal health data um, with researchers because they want to, and not even, they don't want to necessarily get paid to share that data. They just want to give that data um, under, you know, transparent um, means um, to, to try to help the researchers to find new cures, to, to find um, new, new connections, um, new patterns and so on right now is that the researchers, so for the researchers to get uh, permissions of, of patients to gather the data, that is relatively simple. What is really difficult is to get the actual data. Um, and so the researchers end up spending 70-80% of their time trying to get the data from various hospitals, um, you know, calling the hospitals, uh, getting basically paper-based documents sent through faxes, um, digitalizing those um, documents cleaning the data, contextualizing the data, and so on and so on. And so even, so only after all of that happens, um, can they start actually doing the research. What we think is, is would be a much better way is that, um, you know, if legally speaking, patients already own that data, they need to be con controlling that data as well. So if every person has the, all the, the, the healthcare data that, that they have acquired throughout their life, if it will under their control, the researchers can go directly to them, which they do anyway when they need to ask them for permission to, to get their data. But, you know, that would be a one-stop shop. So they get the grant and then they get the data as well. Um, and so what we are trying to do is basically put the, uh, the patient's data onto their uh, devices. Um, usually that would be a mobile phone. Um, and then work on a research portal where you could have anonymized um, queries on the data um, of, you know, every every participant in the network. Um, and whenever a researcher comes in and, and wants to gather a particular set of data, they can basically just send out a notification to their phones asking the patients whether they uh, would be willing to share the data with this and this person for um, a particular purpose of research. And the patient can say yes or no. And if they agree, um, you know, they, they would either um, the data, um, a, a local analysis on, on their phone. But again, that's maybe something that we can go into uh, a bit later. The architecture of your software is interesting because you have, you know, sort of three different places where the data can live potentially. And the most important, uh, at least to the patient, is with their own mobile device. So you have most of their healthcare, health information within living inside the you know, hardware of their device, not on the cloud. Um, but, you know, what about other larger forms of data like imaging, x-rays, you have video scans uh, at the hospital. How do patients carry around that data? Or, you know, what have you guys built or what are you guys thinking to um, manage that sort of data? The uh, um, heavy data or the rich data, as in images, videos, and so on, uh, that 
cannot is what well, is not practical to store on mobile devices. So that stuff would would still be the way we see it. That would still be stored on a on a cloud. Um, however, the difference is that um, you know we want to be as a backup. We want to be storing everything on the cloud anyway uh, because we don't. Want, I mean, we want to give um, users a recovery option if they lose the phone or whatever happens. Um, the difference is that all of that data um, is still fully encrypted. So what we want to be doing is giving the patients or the end users um, a public-private key, and then the private key encrypts all of that data before it hits the cloud. So basically, we're storing um, data for the end users. We don't know what that data is. So to us, it's just an encrypted blob of, of um, information that we cannot read until the person decides to with a particular person. Um, now, luckily, um, most of the, the data in, in healthcare is relatively lightweight. Um, you know, even if you look at your iPhone today, um, obviously there's the Apple Health Kit and all of that stuff. And if you go out jogging, if uh, you wear your uh, watch, um, there's already a lot of data being captured. And, and a lot of that data is sometimes also stored on the phone. But that's really lightweight data because it's all... Um, Values, it's all text-based and so on. So you know, it's it's the, the rich data is maybe twenty percent of, of all of the stuff. Um, and so we still think think that you know most of the data can be stored on on a mobile device. And then obviously when there's richer media um, that we can still push on the cloud um, and still make all of that work pretty well for the patient. Yeah, that makes sense. And also probably the most critical pieces of information are text-based, you know, what allergies does this person have um, and things like that. What's their me medication history? Those things that can be stored on the phone. So no one's going to really need to yeah. see your CAT scan um, in emergency situation, probably not going to be uh, happening. And I, as I yeah. understand, like talking more deeper into the privacy um, aspect of things, there's a app you guys use zero pass can you talk to me a little bit about what zero pass is and how you guys utilize it in order to uh, allow patients to get back into their information in case they lose it yeah uh, so there's a couple of things that that we uh, want to be using that it's not ourselves who are developing uh, one is zero pass one is um, and, um, talk about later um, so zero pass is uh, team based in Slovenia and basically they are working on a solution that is sort of like a multi-signature wallet for cryptocurrencies. That's probably the best analogy that I could give you. Uh, but the idea is that you have your private key. Um, and so in our instance, every end user has a private key with which all of their data is encrypted on their device uh, before it's stored. Um, and so then, first of all, we need to make sure that all of that encrypted data is backed up in case they lose their phone. What we also need to do is we need to make sure that the, uh, the private key is backed up uh, because the private key is also held on the phone. If the phone is lost or stolen, um, we need to give them a recovery option. Um, what the Zero Pass team is working on is um, taking that private key and then um, splitting it into two or three parts. And then what you do is you would give one part to um, to your friend or to your uh, parents or whoever you trust. Um, and what you need to do then is, or you know, one could also be held by by your GP, for example. 
And in case you lose the private key because you, you know, lost the phone or the phone got uh, damaged or whatever, um, all you need to do is basically call um, you know, two out of three people who hold one part of the key. Um, they would do a simple action on their phone and your private key is recovered. Yeah, that's, you know, as we get into this world of blockchain and cryptocurrencies, I think private keys, private wallets are going to be um, hotly debated and hotly uh, innovated with. So there's going to be lots of different types of you know, opportunities for companies to be working on that kind, those kinds of solutions. Very interesting. Um, so, you know, I kind of want to step back again a little bit and talk about, you know, the the backbone protocol that you use for your network, the EOS network. So, you know, for some of the audience members, they might understand that there's Ethereum and EOS and maybe a few others like NEO and whatnot and more getting developed. And these like foundational platforms um, you know, are important for other companies if they wanted to build on top of them but why did you choose eos <laughs> yeah good question and and we've uh, we've got that one quite a lot um like you said very well there's a few that's probably one of the best ways to put it i think um, foundational uh, platforms or blockchains um obviously so for the the listeners who who aren't so um into the whole blockchain and crypto space, you know, the first, as you probably know, or or some of you might not know, the first one was uh, Bitcoin blockchain. And Bitcoin is obviously uh, the oldest blockchain and it's, it's I think, very well tested, uh, but it has some limitations. It's fairly simple in terms of what it can, uh, what you can do with it. Um, then came um, other ideas and, and the first one um, with this new idea was Ethereum and the idea was that you could instead of just having simple transactions um, you could have small or not so small snippets of code uh, running on the network and you know that way we came to contracts and you know what we can do with smart contracts and stuff and so on uh, the problem with Ethereum right now is again something that most people who, who read anything about the, uh, the blockchain crypto space uh, already know about is um, the, the scalability issue. So, so right now, Ethereum's um, transactions per second um, is very, very low. It's you know, ten percent, not even ten transactions per second. Um, what that means is that sometimes where there's a lot of traffic on the network, if you need to get your transaction through or process uh, in the network, you might have to wait for half an hour, one hour, or even more. Um, or alternatively, you need to pay quite a lot of money, so a high fee to get um, your transactions um, higher than, than other transactions to get it through quickly. Because of that problem, um, there's been other um, implementations of sort of the same idea as the Ethereum going on. One is, as you mentioned, NEO. One that just got live now is um, Tezos, and one that went live a month or so ago um, is EOS, and EOS is the one that, um, after looking at all the possible alternatives and, and, and looking at, at solutions, was the one that we thought would be um, the, the best um, sort of um, platform to build on for our use cases. And so why, why the speed of transactions was so important for us? 
we are using blockchain. One of the ways that we're using blockchain is as a distributed and immutable access control list. Um, and so in every IT system, an access control list is basically where the software system, a particular person who wants to um, access a specific piece of information um, has the right to access that information. Um, and so what that also means is that if me as a, as a patient want to give access to my data um, to a doctor, um, I need to write that um, transaction on the blockchain. And so I don't want to, as a, as a patient, I don't want to be waiting um, for an hour or two hours because the blockchain network might be under heavy load as I'm trying to do that. Um, and also we want to make those transactions free for the end user. So it would not make sense for us to say, well, you, if you want to give access to your data um, to someone else, you need to pay. And then if it's heavy load on the network, you need to pay even more because otherwise you're going to wait for a couple of hours. Um, and so we were looking at networks that are solving that scalability issue in some other ways as Ethereum. And we still think um, that EOS is right position to solve that and, and as things are right now it's it's um, the throughput of the TPS transactions per second in EOS is higher than it is in Ethereum obviously there's not so many um, users on the network yet and you know a lot of things still need to be proven and, and obviously EOS is under a lot of um, fire currently and then there's a lot of um, discussions going on about how they're doing things um, we still think in, in you know in the in the short term it's probably the the network that is solving scalability the best right now, but things can change as well. So you know I know that Ethereum is upgrading their protocol. They are probably going to move to proof of stake, which EOS is. We need to realize that blockchain is is still even though it's ten years old, it's still young technology and things are changing very rapidly. So uh, you know, will it, it will be a fun ride to see how all these things play out? Yeah, absolutely. I think so too. And you know, one thing that I saw with EOS is the way that developers are actually the ones who are funding or paying for. Uh, computing power on the EOS network and the users actually don't have to pay anything. So it's free for them. Uh, as opposed to like other networks, you have everyone kind of have having to pitch in something or stake something in order to participate in the network. So um, what do you think about that aspect of things? Exactly. And that was one of the reasons why we chose EOS as well. So, you know, again, we don't want to have our users be actually when they want to grant access to their data. Um, so what EOS enables us to do as a developer on, uh, or, as a, or as an application on EOS is that we stake um, enough EOS tokens so that all the transactions for the end users are free. Um, so we think that's a, that's a good um, model for our use cases, you know, the, the way we are using it. Um, and I think it's also relatively smart governance because it forces developers to be... Um, conservative with the network resources. Uh, so, you know, the easiest thing today for a developer to do is um, that you just use more resources. So your application is not performing as good as you want it to. So you increase the, the number of CPUs, you, you increase the number of RAM and so on and so on. Um, but, you know, if you have a, a price for that so that, you know, you need to keep staking an increasing amount of tokens, at some point that becomes 
so you need to turn back to your code and, and start optimizing the code. And so I think that's relatively smart governance. What are the risks of moving healthcare data from centralized systems to distributed systems or distributed networks uh, like you're trying to do? Um, first of all, I think, you know, to make this clear for, for the listeners, and that, that's something that we are um, constantly trying to educate people on, is that there's a lot of... Um, so one of the problems with, with blockchain is that not a lot of people... Um, really understand it. And so because they don't understand it, it is regarded as a silver bullet that will, you know, magically solve all, all sorts of things. And so in specifically in healthcare, um, you, you hear so-called experts saying blockchain will solve uh, the interoperability issue, it will solve aggregation issues, it will solve security, it will solve privacy. It won't solve a lot of those issues that that's um, anyone who, who understands what blockchain technology is knows that. Um, and so one of the, the sort of misconceptions uh, that we are trying to um, explain a, a way so that, that people wouldn't, wouldn't perceive it that way anymore is that you shouldn't or nobody should be putting any um, data or personal identifiable information on the blockchain. And that's definitely not something that we are doing. Um, and the reason for that is very simple. So the first thing is that if you put any data on the blockchain, all of that data is by definition public because it's a public ledger. Anyone who's in the network can see that data. Um, obviously, then you have a way around that and people's an easy fix. You just encrypt all the data um, and then store the encrypted data on the blockchain. The problem is that, again, it's an immutable ledger and so once any data is stored there, you can't change it anymore. Um, on the other hand, encryption algorithms all, you know, encryption is software like any other software. Um, and encryption algorithms have bugs or weaknesses in them. And every few years you're going to um, find or someone's going to find a, a weakness in an encryption algorithm that makes it possible to exploit that encryption and makes it possible to um, decrypt the data that you that was previously encrypted and wasn't readable. And so what that means is that when such weaknesses are discovered, then all of the data that is stored on the blockchain, it basically becomes public to everyone. Um, if you don't have that data on the blockchain, what you can do is there's an upgrade to the algorithm and you can re-encrypt the data with the newer, stronger algorithm um, and you protect it again. Um, if you have it, then there's nothing you can do about it. Um, and so all of the, the personal information becomes public. And so we don't want to be storing any um, information or any data on the blockchain. What we're using the blockchain for is to provide that distributed and immutable access control list. So we are basically using blockchain not as um, a place to store the data, but we're using it as a gateway to get to the data, um, if that makes sense. Um, and so in that way, we don't think there's, and we're not using um, any distributed um, data storage solutions either. So in, in one way, um, we're using the most distributed <laughs> storage solution because we want to be storing the data on the end user's devices. Um, but we're not using you know, anything like um, IPFS, StoreJ, stuff like that. Um, so in, in our minds, what we are trying to do is um, decentralize the, the biggest weakness of centralized systems, which is that um, 
the, which is the access control list. Uh, because one of the things that we need to know is that a lot of the exploits come from um, your own employees. Um, you know, if you, if you look at security in, in shops and so on, a lot of the thefts come from the employees. And, and so what, as, a, as an IT engineer, what you need to design for is that there's, there's going to be bad actors within. Um, there's going to be people who have administrator rights who can access all the parts of a database, who can access all any um, personal information that is stored in that system. And so you need to design a system that those people cannot access that information. If, if you have someone as a super administrator, um, they, they won't be able to go into a database, copy a, a specific set of, of information, and then cover the tracks because to be able to access that data, um, they will have to have a grant on the blockchain um, to be able to access it. And they can't go back in, in a public ledger and then delete that grant. Um, and so that's the way we're looking at it. And, and in, in that sense, I don't think using um, you know decentralized ledger technology brings any risk into healthcare IT. I think it, it, it improves the security and transparency and trust um, for an order of magnitude. Yeah, you can, I know I've heard stories where a celebrity might, um, you know, check into a hospital and then one of the employees at the hospital decides, oh, look, it's, you know, so-and-so celebrity, let me take a look at his medical history and then that can get leaked into the public. I was interested about your thoughts on, you know, StoreJ, IPFS, you said that Larcia uh, Coin, all these like companies or organizations trying to develop blockchain data warehouses or have you decentralized encrypted do you think that in the future that will be more possible as technology and speed uh gets better or bandwidth gets better or do you think that mm -hmm. it's not necessary because it, it does not um provide the security benefits to outweigh all the other disadvantages that they have right now um, so the, the way things are right now, um, it's not, we don't think any more secure, um, than, you know, a, a traditional cloud provider with, with bleeding edge, um, security really. Um, again, that's right now things change rapidly. So all of that stuff might, might change in the future. Right now, we don't think that's, that's a technology that is um worth using yet uh but we'll see okay moving on what kind of devices do you think will be used to store private keys in the future Oof. good question um i don't know i think one of the interesting um ways to store private keys will be offline devices um i think that's going to be really interesting um, and then it's going to be interesting to see ways, um, you know, how you get in an offline device that you never want to put online, how you then basically sign transactions with the private keys and so on. And I've seen solutions where um, they use audio. So basically you would have a, a device that would store your private uh, key um, and then it would communicate with your iPhone um, through microphone and, and speaker, for example, um, sign transactions that way. Um, and I think, I don't know, uh, I think there's, you know, in, in imagination runs wild. Yeah, so I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing a lot of that. 
Yeah, I often think about like implantable chips or even like, let's say you have a pacemaker and uh, the pacemaker has its own private key internally and you know, no one's going to be able to remove that from you unless it's a surgeon or something. So that kind of has some layer of protection, let's say. So I think it's um, you know going to be interesting seeing how that part of the industry yeah. moves forward. I don't know what happens though if, if somehow uh, that private key is copied then. <laughs> what happens then? <laughs> Yeah, right. You're kind of stuck with it. Uh, it's a good question. Absolutely. Yeah. Welcome to the Health on Chain News Corner. On July 5th, 2018, the International Journal of Health Geographics published an editorial titled Geospatial Blockchain Promises, Challenges, and scenarios in health and healthcare. The authors note there is a growing number of potential use cases, including securing patient and provider identities, managing pharmaceutical and medical device supply chains, clinical research and data monetization, medical fraud detection, public health surveillance, enabling truly public and open geotagged data, powering many Internet of Things connected autonomous devices, wearables, drones, and vehicles via the distributed peer-to-peer apps they run to deliver full vision of smart, healthy cities and regions. And finally, blockchain-enabled augmented reality in crisis mapping and recovery scenarios, including mechanisms for validating, crediting, and rewarding crowdsourced geotagged data, among other emerging use cases. It's a great read and re-explains blockchain for people who are relatively new to the technology. Check out the show notes for a free link to the publication. And now back with Laza Boko, CEO and founder of Eero. My next question, as I was reading through your white paper, there are kind of, I guess, business models that you've developed or are developing with clinicians and clinics where... Uh, they would need to, in order to utilize your network, they would need to stake certain amounts of tokens. I think you said ten thousand dollars worth of tokens. Um, and you know the reason you're putting out that is one to protect from spam. So if you know clinics need to uh, have some skin in the game, you're not going to have a bunch of like fake clinics out there trying to um, you know mess up with the system. Can you talk a little bit about that and how you know you envision that going to how you envision that's going to play out yeah um again a bit of a background on that is that we don't think that anyone wants to live in a world so we have this whole debate on utility tokens right um and the whole idea behind utility token is that you basically you use the token to pay for a service that you want to get um, we don't think that anyone wants to live in a world where you need a different token for uh, every service on the internet. That's just not going to work. Even if we get to a world where you're going to need a separate token for every service on the internet, um, I'm sure we're going to have a service then, which is going to be a wallet or, or some sort of service uh, where you will just hold all, all your um, coins in Ethereum, Bitcoin, whatever, and then when you need to pay for a service in a different token, it's going to exchange um, that token on the spot, pay for the service, and that's it. And so nobody's really going to hold on to 100 different tokens. Um, I don't think that's going to happen. Um, and so 
we don't think we're going to be in a world where you know someone's going to hold on to tokens, pay for services. Um, what we do think is a, a good model is the staking model, which is basically you know we've we've sort of borrowed or copied that from from EOS more or less. Um, so in that model, the only time where you need to be thinking about the token. Um, a solution that you want to be using, um, in our case, that would be the Erio network. You want to become a member of that network, um, and then you need to make sure that you hold uh, um, a sufficient amount of tokens to be part of that network. And that's really the only time that you need to be thinking about the tokens. And then from that point on, um, tokens are not something that um, you need to worry about. Um, again, one of the ways that we've designed, designed our token model is that the, the amount of tokens that you need to stake um, is fixed in fiat terms. So for example, if the price of the token would appreciate, um, you can take some of those tokens away and then sell them off. Um, and so, you know, you don't have to um, have an, an X amount of tokens always locked in. Um, why that is so, as you mentioned, the first thing, uh, or the first reason why we did that is um, purely uh, spam protection so that you know in someone has someone who joins the network has some skin in the game that's number one um, but equally important is some of the edge cases that we need to that we um, had to think about and, and find solutions for and so as an example one of the edge cases that we need to cover is if you are working on zero knowledge data storage um, so which means Can you explain you know, a little bit about what that is zero yeah knowledge. so yeah, it's, it's basically what we were discussing in, in the beginning of the interview, which is that the patient has a public private key and, and then all of their data is encrypted with their private key before we store it anywhere, um, which means that there is, from our point of view, there is zero knowledge of what that data is because we cannot read it. If we have an um, emergency scenario where, for example, a patient is unconscious um, they are brought to a doctor or to a hospital, and that hospital is, is a new one, and it doesn't have access to that patient's data. Um, nobody can really read that data because, again, it's zero knowledge. Nobody knows what it is. Um, what and you know, at, in that point, at that point, it would be useful if the doctor um, somehow gets access, uh, but it cannot happen because the patient is unconscious, right? Um, and so the way to get around that is, again, to use uh, what we already um, discussed, zero pass, which is um, breaking down the private key into a couple of parts. And, you know, having that key broken down into various parts, we can do a couple of things with it. One, we can recover the key um, for the patient who lost it, or we can provide emergency access. Imagine a scenario where, you know, I'm the patient, I have a private key, but I share that private key um, with my girlfriend and one with my um, GP and one with my mom, for example. Um, and then, um, and so none of them, because they only hold, hold one part of the key, none of them can access that data. And I would need two of those um, parts merged together to um, to unlock my data. And so I am so brought let's to- just, Let's just say your, um, you know, your girlfriend and your mom do, you know, collude with each other and they're able to, would they be able to access your data in that way? They, they would be able to access that data in, in, in yeah. But, uh, you know, obviously it needs to be people who you, uh, sure. who you trust. Yeah. Um, and then I guess even if they do collude, then if they are the ones who see it, um, it's not that damaging. <laughs> sure. 
um, but but obviously, I mean, it's it's a good point, and it's always um, nothing is 100%. Well, there are things that are 100% secure, but they're really cumbersome, and you know, you don't have recovery scenarios, and once something is lost, is lost, and so so and so, we always need to find sort of a sweet spot between user experience and security, and you know, it's 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 never one way or the other; it's always somewhere in between, and and you need to make compromises for that. Um, and so if, if I go back to the example, so I'm brought into a hospital, I'm unconscious, um, the doctor wants to access the data, um, what they can do is they can ask, um, you know, two holders of, of the part of my key um, to, uh, to, to enable access. Um, and again, because we don't want people basically um, gambling or just trying emergency accesses just for fun or just because they want to... Um, see if they can get access to data. Um, if they have a certain amount of, of stake in the system, we can ask for a small um, sort of security deposit. So what we could do is we can say, yes, we will give you emergency access, uh, but first of all, you need to transfer an X amount of tokens to that patient's account. Um, and so what that enables us to do is to, to sort of empower the patient. Um, and so in a perfect scenario, uh, you know, they stake, um, let's say $1,000 worth of tokens, um, they get emergency access, I get treated. Um, once I regain consciousness, there would be a push notification waiting on my phone saying there was emergency access. Um, you know, was that um, legitimate access? Was that necessary? If everything checks out, I say yes, those $1,000 worth of tokens are sent back to the, the, the hospital, everything's fine. Um, if, for example, I don't think that was um, appropriate access, that there wasn't an emergency access and it was basically an exploit, um, I can say no and I hold on to Now, the data is obviously was still stolen, um, but it's a much better situation compared to now where that data is accessed and it's stolen and I don't have any um, sort of monetary um, or, or, or anything um, paid to me because uh, my access, my, my data was accessed um, illegally. Um, and also it puts sort of more power in, in the hands of the patient when the, um, the, the hospital needs to prove that the, the access was needed and, you know, to, to get the money back. Because what we have right now is that um, there's going to be an institution accessing the data. Um, and if I don't have the money to pay for a lawyer to fight that, there's really nothing I can do. And so it's sort of turning that or the roles upside down in a way. So tell me more about like this dispute resolution. So mm -hmm. you have, the patient has one month to dispute that the access to their information was not permissioned, I guess is the, mm -hmm. is the idea. Yeah. And they're going to need to talk. Who did it? Who did? Who do they actually speak with? Is it someone from Eero? Is it the clinic itself? Is there like a, a you know a governing body who is responsible for saying yes or no? So the idea is that it's it's um, in a way fully automated. So the 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 deposit that they need to um, stake is sent to that patient's address, and is then uh, hundred percent under that patient's control. And so it's in you know full discretion of the patient what, what they. So what if the again, patient? Then you know you can argue that then you're going to have some some bad patients as well who are going to say even when the emergency access 
was um, fully you know uh, appropriate that they're still gonna hold on to to those tokens um, we don't think that legal disputes can be automated or they can be uh, you know smart contracted um, what we think needs to happen at that point is obviously you need to go um, to court you need to go to an official um, you know governing body whatever that is in, in um, a particular jurisdiction and you need to work it out um, what we as IT providers uh, want to enable is the full transparency as in you know these were the things that happened this is who has the tokens now this were the individuals involved um, and now it needs to be someone else who decides uh, what is going to happen and what wasn't legal. Um, you know, we just provide a set of tools um, to, to make it really transparent what happened in a specific situation. So would those disputes have to be resolved within a month's time or can there be... Uh, so other... yeah, it's, so in, if you look at our white paper, we said, you know, then you have a month. So the... Um, the, the patient has a month to decide whether that was um, justified or not justified. And then after a month, um, the I mean, either you do opt-in or you do opt-out. So either the, the tokens stay with the patient or the tokens are returned to whoever um, put that security deposit down. Um, but again, all of that stuff is, you know, we need to see how those things play out in, in the real world. That's something that was um, brainstorming. It might not be a month, it might be... Months, sure, it's months. something that still, um, you know, it's not the written in stone, I guess. It's something that still yeah, could be yeah, yeah. resolved that, after. That's all, you know, programmable stuff. Very cool. Now, that's that's really good to know. Absolutely. Um, so, you know, I think it's really important all, you know, when you're thinking about healthcare solutions, how does your solution fit into the clinician's workflow on a day-to-day -day basis? Like, how do you imagine that working? Yeah, um, also a good question. Um so primarily what we want to be working on is backend solutions, um, which means we want to be a platform for safe, secure, transparent data storage. And through that, we want to empower the patients to own and control the data. And we want to reduce the friction of data exchange. That's what we want to be doing. Obviously, to make any of that useful for the end users and the end users, um, is a number of people. So it's patients, it's clinicians, um, doctors, nurses, administrators, it's researchers and so on and so on. Uh, we need to have front-end applications, um, obviously, or we need integrations with existing systems. Um, the way we see it right now, our sort of first um, targeted segment of customers would not necessarily be um, hospitals and clinicians. It would be um, medical device, or um, I should say maybe healthcare device manufacturers, um, simply because you know they are all moving into the connected space. Um, so IoT in a way, um, they're generating digital data. And so if they wanna give that data secondary value, uh, meaning it doesn't just have primary value when a measurement is taken, but you know, if also we can then analyze that data. After a while, you can um, pull it up again, um, look at it again, get a second opinion, and so on and so on. All of that data needs to obviously be um, stored somewhere. It needs to be standardized. It needs to be contextualized and so on. For that reason, 
medical device manufacturers would be a, a really good sort of first targeted segment for us. Um, and for them, you know, we would be the, the back-end solution for all of their data management and data storage needs. Um, and then the second set of um, segment of customers could be other data producers and also obviously could be um, clinicians. Um, but to get the, the network um, out in the real world, obviously you need front-end applications which uh, people are going to be using. Um, so at some point, you know, we know that we need to be developing some of those applications ourselves. Um, but also what we would like to see is um, that one of the things that we want to do is have open APIs, have fully documented APIs. Um, we would like to develop an application for a particular use case that they would be um, freely, um, you know, they would have all the resources um, to be able to do that. Um, and so I think we in, in healthcare IT, we also need to move into the world that um, we have been having in, in the mobile space for, for a while now, which is that we don't have this monolithical um, applications anymore that have 100,000 different use cases, but we have small single purpose apps. And so I think, you know, in healthcare IT, that also needs to happen. And so, uh, but for that to happen, we need to have um, a developer ecosystem that supports that kind of application development. Um, but yes, to, to answer your question, so to get this into um, the clinical world, uh, we need to have either developed applications or we need to have integration hospital information systems and, and so on and i read from your white paper that you are working with or i think you're integrating with open ehr which is a you know foundation organization mainly in europe and like in asia that are um, basically developing a new ehr open sourced completely open sourced and people can build on it create their own front end uis and um you know it's interesting to I learned that it's not something that the U.S. is really looking into. At least they haven't adopted OpenEHR specifically. I'm sure there's lots of open source projects going on around that, but um, that specific project, you know, the U.S. hasn't adopted. Um, yeah, so I need to correct you a bit on that one. Um, what oh. OpenEHR is, is a nonprofit foundation based in the U.K., and, and it's a group of uh, medical professionals and, and IT professionals um, working on standardizing uh, formats. So what, what they are primarily, primarily concerned with is, is trying to work out um, ways to store healthcare data so that different, basically solving interoperability. So that different systems in different parts of the world would be able to interpret um, a specific set of data in the same way so that we make sure that we all understand a specific um, data um, the same wherever we are. Um, they, but the trick there is that they are not developing any software code. So they are basically developing standards that they need to be um, manifested through, uh, you know, different implementations of those standards. And so what we are doing is, um, so we are a part of OpenEHR um, and we are obviously working towards being fully compliant with, with OpenEHR standards, which means that um, any data that is uh, stored in you know, um, should be universally understood by any system that is also OpenEHR compliant. Um, now, 
you know, if if I can um, allow myself a, a few more minutes on this, because I think it's it's quite important. Um, For sure. Th- this whole issue of of open standards in in healthcare IT, um, I think is 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 really interesting and it's really important because um, we you know if if you go to a, a healthcare IT conference or wherever you go, digital health, whatever, um, everyone will be yeah, on one hand talking about interoperability and everyone will be sick of interoperability issues. And we've been trying to solve this for years and years and years. Um, and there's various ways um, to, to solve it, or there's various ways people are trying to solve this. Um, and But really the only way to, to solve interoperability is for everyone to start um, speaking the same language. Um, you know, sharing images or photographs on our phones for granted and it's really easy, um, but it's really easy because we have a couple of standards. Uh, we all agree on those standards and all the phone manufacturers and all the software manufacturers are using the same standards. And so that makes it really easy. Um, <clears throat> in healthcare IT, it's, it's quite a lot different. And so what we have in healthcare IT is business models um, based on vendor lock-in. Um, and so what we see is um, every big healthcare IT vendor has its own uh, proprietary data standards um, and they have them for really good reasons. Um, And the reason is that they spend a lot of money um, to sell their product to a hospital, but once they sell it, because they sell it with their proprietary data standards, once that organization, after a year or two years of using that uh, software or that system, um, it would be extremely painful to migrate to anything else because that data is not easily translatable into any other system. And with legislation, um, you know, they need to be storing that data for sometimes up to 100 years. And so the what happens is that there's complete vendor lock-in. Um, and so there's very little incentive for existing players to adopt open standards. Um, the 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 sad thing or the interesting thing um, is that you know there are a couple of competing open standards for healthcare data, um, and I, I think it, you know we can have a, a debate on which open standard is, is better. A healthy debate. What I think is sad is that um, we are not moving towards open standards yet. So we we're not even having a debate um, which open standard uh, because there's still so many proprietary standards being used. Um, but I think it's really healthy that, um, you know, the U.S. has its own version or so there's sort of the way we see it, there's two open standards right now gaining popularity. And one is sort of um, very U.S. centric and the other one is the rest of the world. <laughs> um, and so open EHR or open air, as they call it, is is sort of the, the rest of the world. And then um, the U.S. is using... Um, something called um, HL7 slash um, FHIR, or they pronounce it FHIR, it's um, F-H-I-R, if anyone wants to Google it. So we looked at both sets of standards, um, hopefully, you know, being unbiased when evaluating them. And, and um, we think that that open air is um, a lot more future compatible um, and that it's really tackling the, the issue on a, on a more basic level, so to speak. And so the, the best comparison that I could give you is, um, you know, so the, the problem with interoperability is we're, we're speaking different languages, right? The way um, FHIR HL7 
is tackling the issue the language is um, Spanish minus Slovenian, and then we use English, um, which in that scenario would be HL7 fire standard to communicate with each other. Um, sorry, so, so what that, that part means, again, the language, uh, yeah. Yeah, it, sorry. It's a good it's analogy. Bad. I just want to make sure people can hear all yeah. of it. Um, so, it, for example, um, you, your native language is Spanish, my native language is Slovene. Um, we, cho we choose to speak English to communicate with each other. And in that scenario, English is HL7 fire standard. Um, but what that implies is that, you know, I have my set of data and before I communicate with you, I need to translate that data from Slovene to English. And then you receive that data in English and then you need to translate it or interpret it in Spanish or whatever your native language is. Um, and so it's really focusing on the exchange of what the, what the standard is to exchange the information. What OpenAir does is it, it basically um, tries to um, harmonize the language that everyone is speaking. So even though my native language is Slovene and yours is, you know, English or it would be Spanish or um, Italian or whatever, um, when we start using open EHR, it's basically Esperanto. So we are all, or Latin. Um, so we're all using um, a third language that is not native to anyone, um, but we are storing all of that information in that language. So when I share that information with you, I don't need to translate it into a medium to share it with you. I just give you um, the, the raw data um, stored in, in open air format and your system should be able to understand it. So that's really the way we see the difference between um, fire and, and open. open EHR. Yeah. That, thank you for explaining that. I think it's, it is important and I did not know um, a lot of the things that you mentioned about the, those two different standards. So I'm glad the audience has a better picture of, of those uh, global standards. So there are many healthcare blockchain companies. What makes you your company unique or what why do you think that you know you'll remain competitive moving forward? <laughs> Good question. Um one of the things is the one that I already mentioned. So I think there's a lot of um hype driven projects or companies. Um I think a lot of uh projects out there are basically riding the, the wave of, of blockchain and basically selling solutions that don't really exist. So they're selling blockchain as a silver bullet. And I think one, we um, need to get their, those solutions into the real world and, and you know, get people to start using them. Um, either they or the end users will realize that those solutions aren't as magic as as they are claiming to be. Um, and so one way that we think are, are fundamentally different um, is that we don't think blockchain solves all the problems of, of the contemporary healthcare IT. And we think that there's a lot of other pieces of technology that are equally important. So, you know, and I'm not diminishing the value of blockchain because I think it's, it's you know, one of the most fascinating um, new technologies in the last decade for sure. Um, but, you know, saying that, that just 
because you're using blockchain, you're going to solve all the, the problem. I don't think that's going to get you very far. And so that's why we're using blockchain. That's why we're, we're using or we're developing zero-knowledge data storage, which in itself is also something that is a very new and fresh concept. Um, we're using open air. We're using um, another um, set of open standards called SNOMED. Uh, and we're working on working with bleeding edge languages, um, you know, um, bleeding what's, edge. What's SNOMED? Uh, so SNOMED, um, SNOMED is another, um, so it's um, a short name for standardized nomenclature of medicine. Um, and so basically what SNOMED does is it's a long list pretty much of um, of diseases, of procedures, of uh, um, basically various terms that are used in daily um, clinicians, and it's it's a really nice sort of um, standardized way of how to um, write down the the, the procedures and um, uh, diagnose and so on and so on. And again, what it enables you to do is to read a specific code and then interpret that um, in your local language and understand, um, you know, either what the procedure was that was done or what um, diagnosis was and so on and so on. Um, and so, you know, we are using a lot of different um, technologies and a lot of different um, standards and so on. And, and we think that that's really what um, differentiates us from our competitors, because what we've been, there's definitely, you know, I'm sure there's right now a hundred um, blockchain projects in healthcare. Um, everyone is focusing on um, blockchain, 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 and sorry, say that again. We encourage, you know, um, so there's definitely a hundred or more uh, blockchain projects in healthcare right now, um, and we definitely support innovation, and we think it's really healthy that there's a lot of movement. Um, but at the same time, you know, you need some domain knowledge, you need other technologies and so on. And so that's where we think we are different or better. Before we end, I want to get to a couple topics that I think are fascinating. One being AI and how you are trying to, within your platform, develop a way for researchers to, you know, build, you know, training data sets with patient information. Uh, and then there's different levels to it. Can you kind of discuss how that would work on like, a, I guess a high level uh, because we can go down the rabbit hole of AI, but I just kind of want to let the audience understand what you're trying to develop um, for researchers there. Sure. Uh, so, you know, the, the basic issue with um, machine learning with artificial intelligence um, is that to enable it, to enable it, you need um, a lot of data and you need um, structured data. If you don't have that, then it's just not doable. Um, and so we get back to our initial idea that um, we, we want to provide easily accessible standardized data that different systems will be able to understand. And if we manage to do that, then we enable um, AI and we enable machine learning and so on. Um, there's one other thing that I think it, it's really important here. Um, when we talk about AI and machine learning and big data sets and so on. 
Um, one of the things that I, I don't think a lot of people understand is, or at least you know, we don't talk about it as much, is the problem of de-anonymization of data. Um, once you have big data sets and once you get into the um, space of or, um, you know, more generally artificial intelligence, um, is that the data that is anonymous can uh, easily get de-anonymized uh, once you get to a certain threshold of data. There was a really famous example a while ago um, where Netflix basically made a, a, a public um, uh, competition and they took a lot of the, the viewers' data, anonymized it, um, put it out into the public, um, and so asked various people to try to improve their um, algorithm for the recommendation engine. So it's, you know, you watch this series and then you finish it and then Netflix will go, uh, you might be interesting, interested in this and this and this. Um, and so there was one person who took that data that was com completely anonymized. He took that data, um, did some machine learning on it, compared it to other data that is publicly available on the internet, um, data that we put on Facebook, um, you know, other types of social media and so on and was able to de-anonymize some of that data. So what he was able to do was um, identify the individuals behind the viewing data, um, which turned into this big scandal at the time. Um, the moral of the story is that once you enable machine learning and, and AI on large sets of data, it becomes increasingly difficult to keep data anonymized. Um, and so, one of the really interesting ways to keep anonymity of big data sets is something called analyzing place. Um, it's something that obviously it wasn't us who thought of it. It was, um, I, I think I heard IBM talking about it the first. Um, and so the idea is that you don't, so there's, there's two ways to analyze data, right? One would be you have 100,000 people each with their own data set. You go to each one of them, you copy the data into one central location. Um, you have an, an aggregate of all of that data, and then you start um, doing big data analysis, you do machine learning, you do whatever. Um, the other way to do that is to have a smaller sample of data, maybe just a thousand people, try to find um, different um, patterns on that data, and then take that algorithm and then test it on a much larger data set. Um, tested on a much larger data set, um, you don't copy all of that data into one location, you just send the algorithm in all those 100,000 places and you run that algorithm locally and then you just get the result back. Um, and so in that way, you never um, have um, so much data that you are able to de-anonymize it. And so one of the ways, um, and so IBM got, um, was basically um, got that idea of, of not you know, going from copy um, and then analyze and went into analyzing place approach uh, because they were trying to analyze some um, genomic data. And genomic data, so a full DNA sequencing of uh, uh, one uh, individual is about 150 gigabytes. And so now, you know, imagine that you need to have um, maybe 100,000 or a million um, DNA samples each um, 150 gigs have all of that data copied into one place. And so they started doing that analyzing place approach. 
Um, why that is really interesting for us is that, you know, if you can imagine sometime in the future where you have different, you, you have a lot of participants in the area network and they all have their data, healthcare data on their phones. Um, what we can enable for researchers is that, for example, the researcher would want to have a set of data from a thousand individuals initially. Um, they would, for that, those thousand individuals, they would actually, they would copy the actual data into one place. So I would ask a thousand people to share their specific data. I would copy it in one place. I would have it there structured. I would do some machine learning on it. I would find maybe a new pattern in that data. Th those thousand people is still not big enough sample to be able to de-anonymize that data. So we, we preserve anonymity. Um, once I find the pattern, Pattern that they want to test on a larger part. I send that algorithm onto every patient's uh, phone, and that algorithm is run on their device locally, and no actual data escapes. So what the researcher would then get back is just the result of that algorithm, which would either be a true or a false, or a zero or a one, or a value, or what have you. Um, and so they would be able to test um, algorithms on a much larger data sample while preserving anonymity. And I think that that's a really interesting uh, way forward. Yeah, and I think that's one of your unique propositions of ERIO, actually, and I, I do appreciate that the work that is being put into that uh, space. Do you think in the future, all of this anonymizing data won't be an issue? Do you think we'll live in some sort of transparent society where you know medical information will flow freely sort of like how images are flowing freely on facebook or instagram for example or is or is that something that individuals will hold very on to dearly for that's a very good question um i actually think the op it's it's really interesting i think now um i don't think we we have the privacy and security awareness that that we should have i think there's there's still a lot of people out there so you know, I'm, I professionally, I'm in the IT world and I am surrounded with, with IT people and we have security engineers and so on. And, and you know, I'm, I'm kind of biased towards um, being maybe a bit um, extreme on data security and so on. And so, you know, I, I use, so. yeah, and I use two-factor authentication. Um, I don't use SMS and two-factor authentication, um, you know, encryption, all that kind of stuff. There's still, I think, a lot of people out there who um, say that, you know, I, oh, it doesn't really matter if I get hacked or if my data gets exposed or stolen, I have nothing to hide. I think everyone has something to hide, um, even if it's just in a way that every person has data that could be taken out of context and presented in ways that, you know, weren't truthfully so. Um, and so in that way, everyone has um, data that they don't want to have exposed to public. Um, and I think it's, it's basically a, a human right to, to privacy. Um, and I think as we go along with um, scandals like Cambridge Analytica, with um, various um, you know, hacks and ransomware and stuff like that, that, that awareness that is right now more concentrated just in with the IT professionals to the general public, um, or at least I hope it will. And what we in the IT world 
need to do is we need to make it simple for users to be able to protect their data. That's what we need to do. So I think awareness needs to come either organically or it needs to come from through legislation or through you know enough scandals that, that people will, will take that seriously. But at the same time, then the IT world needs to do their job to provide sets of tools um, for people to be able to do that. And that's also sort of one of the missions that we have with Ethereum for healthcare data. I was just curious about your traction with the product, with the platform, how many developers are developing on it and are there people actually using it currently or testing on it? Yeah, um, so we are still in very early stages of what we're developing. Um, we, if anyone was uh, maybe following uh, more closely Erio the past couple of months, we've um, our, our plans have um, changed a bit as well. Uh, so our initial plan was to do an ICO um, in the end of March. Um, and then we decided to postpone it for a couple of reasons. Um, one was obviously, and you know, we're, we're quite public about that, is that the, uh, the, the public crypto market um, sentiment turned quite negative and it was a quite difficult, and still is a quite difficult time, I think, to do a, a, an ICO. Um, there was a couple of, um, as we've discussed, we are building this on EOS. And so if we wanted to do an ICO in March, we would need to do it on a different platform because EOS wasn't live yet, um, which would then require us to do a token swap, um, token listings twice on exchanges and so on. And so there was a lot of um, overhead involved, costs involved as well. And so for us, it didn't really make sense um, to to do the ICO then. And so we decided to postpone it. Um, if we look at the situation right now, we're still, I think, in, in quite a bear market, at least the, the public crypto market. And so we decided to start talking to some uh, more institutional investors. And so we are right now in the middle of a new fundraising round. We're talking to some um, sort of half traditional, half more crypto VCs um, to basically finish the next fundraising round. Um, when hopefully we success, we will be scaling the team, uh, you know, start working hard on the next 18-month um, roadmap. Um, but what we've been seeing, so what we have right now is a pilot project, um, and that's maybe something that um, if, if I can take a minute or two to, to describe that because we haven't uh, spoken about it yet. So what, what we've done so far is we've done a pilot project in the Middle East, which I think is, is um, quite cool and I'm quite proud of. Um, and the story behind that is that one of our advisors um, is an American who's based in the Middle East and has a telemedical uh, company there. And one of his friends is another American woman um, who's also based in the Middle East and he, she's running an NGO uh, providing primary health care in refugee camps in the Middle East. Um, and so one of uh, her problem or problems or, or their problems uh, was uh, gathering healthcare data or having electronic health records in those refugee camps. Um, people in the refugee camps stay there on average between five and seven years. So it's not, you know, it's not like a month or two months. Um, and so it's quite important to have a medical history of those people because it, it helps with... Um, treating chronic diseases and, and so on and to, you know, um, 
collect data to, to see what kind of um, diseases there are, try to get uh, medication for those diseases and so on and so on. Even uh, vaccinations. Color, I can imagine vaccinations yeah. is a big, um, you know, also, use case. Yeah. Um, and so one of the problems uh, there was that because they're an NGO, they usually have, you know, either volunteer um, doctors coming in uh, for a month, two months, three months, and then going back home, or they're paying local uh, doctors to, to go into these camps and, and try to help people. But in any case, there's a, there's a really high churn rate of, of doctors. It gets really difficult to collect electronic health records or healthcare data over time and, and have that in a consistent way. Uh, where you know you can you can have some statistics on it. When if a new doctor comes in, they can look at what the previous doctor um, collected and understand that information and so on. Um, and so, long story short, it, uh, we thought it was a really good use case for uh, what we're trying to do with with Erio, which is basically have patient-owned um, data because the, the the refugees. It's um, a lot of people. Don't believe it when we say it, but um, a, a lot of people there, or, or at least each family has a smartphone, um, an Android phone, which is completely capable of, of holding that data. And we could basically provide them with um, a, a medical ID and also um, information that or data that is being collected on them, and they can and, and that data can travel with them wherever they go. They can take it with them. They can show it to the doctor and so on. And so when they go visit the doctor, they're not a blank piece of paper, but they bring some medical history with them through that data. Um, and so we did a pilot project with them and that pilot project is now live in, in Jordan. Uh, we will be hopefully expanding that to a couple of other countries in the region. Um, there's about 700 refugee camps that could be potential um, users wow. of that. Um, and so that was a really cool thing to do, um, but obviously there's some parts of it. So, um, you know, to be completely honest, there's the, the zero knowledge um, data storage component is still missing there, um, primarily because obviously data privacy and legislation is a lot different there um, than it is in, in the Europe to, to do that with, um, there is encryption, but there isn't um, the true zero knowledge that we are working on. We do have that pilot project out live now um, and the fundraising that we're doing now is um, obviously to develop zero knowledge um, data storage to start working on uh, research tools to start working on an end user app and so on and so on. Um, another thing I think that, that is really important in terms of traction is that we've been invited to quite a few um, conferences um, around the world. I've been to um, Brussels to, to present um, what we're doing to some EU institutions. Um, one of our people, um, Tiasha, who's our business developer, she was in New York um, at the UN um, who were discussing blockchain projects and so on. Um, and what, what we are seeing is that, you know, a lot of or an increasing amount of people are interested in, in how to uh, in that how people can own their, their healthcare data, how to make it um, easier to exchange that data, how to ensure privacy, um, data security, and so on. And so, um, and, and definitely, like I said, I think one of the, the, the natural segments or first set of customers for us are uh, medical device manufacturers. We've been talking to quite a few of them um, and they are basically eager to, uh, to, to start using something, um, the, 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 solution that, that we are working on. Um, but 
yeah, it's you know one step at a time. So with the pilot project, we're through another fundraising round now, um, and then you know. I actually had a couple of follow-up questions there. So, um, what would be like the lowest hanging fruit for medical devices that would work best for your platform? What what kind of device? What um, you know indication does it serve? With medical devices, uh, I should really say healthcare devices. Um, there's a couple of segments. So there's um, medical devices, which means that they are medically certified to you know give you information that will have um, medical value or um, clinical devices is an, is an even uh, better way of saying it. And uh, the interesting thing about clinical devices is that um, it will only give you clinical information if the uh, measurement is done in a clinical environment. So in a hospital with trained staff and so on. So you can have the same clinical or medical device at home, but that won't be um, clinical information. Um, which doesn't mean that that information is any less accurate because, for example, if you have a um, blood pressure monitor, your GP will have the exact same blood pressure monitor as the one you have at home for, you know, 30 bucks or so. Um, it just won't be clinical information. Um, what we think is really interesting as we, as, um, we go along um, is that, you know, all of that information that or the data that you can gather at home isn't necessarily right now clinical information, but it's still accurate. It's still from clinically certified devices, and it will give the clinician um, a lot of insight into um, your lifestyle or you know your your general condition and so on. And even today, uh, you know you're going to have GP saying for for someone who uh, maybe has diabetes or or is in risk of having diabetes. Um, to buy a um, glucose um, monitoring device or measuring device um, and do measurements at home and write it down into a, a notebook. Um, what's really interesting for ERIO is that we can integrate all those devices, whether they're um, devices that are used in clinical settings or devices that are used at home, um, put all of that data in one place and, you know, just clearly mark what, what is a um, clinical data and what isn't clinical data, but um, at the same time, start gathering all of that data in, in, in one place. Um, so, you know, just to wrap this up, how can developers or healthcare companies or different med device companies, how can they connect with you? What's the best way to get in contact with you and the company? Um one of the easiest ways, obviously, is so go to our uh, websites. There's two of them. One is erio.io. The other one is erio.network. Uh, we have emails there. Um, if anyone wants to you know, send me an, an email directly, uh, my email is vasya at erio.io. So that's V-A-S-J-A at erio.io. I'm more than happy to um, connect with people. And then thirdly, um, if you're in the blockchain or crypto space, it's kind of a standard now to be on Telegram. So our entire team is on Telegram. We have an Erio um, channel and group on, on Telegram as well. And, you know, anyone that, that joins, we are uh, very open and we're talking to, to anyone who joins. Um, if anyone wants to look at what we've been doing for the um, refugee project, we have all our code uh, publicly available on GitHub. It's github.com slash Erio Network. Um, and yeah, so I think there's, if anyone wants to get inside, there's plenty of waste. Yeah. And there's quite some interesting mixed reviews on telegram and how that, um, community is developing, um, for different blockchain companies. However, I did notice that you do have, uh, your airdrop 
bot, which is quite innovative. I haven't seen that before. It makes it really easy for people to participate in your airdrop um, event. Yeah. So great job with that. Thank you very much. And Vaja, thank you again. This has been a great conversation, I think. Hopefully our audience will get something out of it. And uh, I hope to hear back from you soon and see what your you know, progress is, uh, especially in the Middle East. I think the pilot project is fantastic. Uh, you should you know that kind of work is important to build out your community, to test your product. So uh, thank you again. Really appreciate it here. Uh, thank you for the invitation, Ray. It was my pleasure. And yeah, definitely, uh, you know, if uh, there's an opportunity to speak to you again in maybe half a year or a year to see what's uh, changed in the meantime, that would be, I would be happy to do it. Hey, y'all, you cyberpunk health warriors and nimble digital disruptors. Check out healthunchained.org and remember to subscribe to Health Unchained on Stitcher soundcloud google play and itunes join the health unchained community on our telegram group t.me slash health unchained if you enjoyed this episode tell your friends your bosses your teams your students to listen and subscribe thank you